Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is Justin Barrett. He's the founder of Oso VR. Website is uh, ossovr.com. So, Justin, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. It's a privilege to be here. Thanks. Yeah. So, tell me about uh, Oso. What's the premise of the company? You know, the the story of uh, Oso is a, it's a very personal one, and it really started uh, back when I was in high school, where I originally wanted to be a video game developer. So I was very into computers, software, and technology. And as I was nearing graduation, um, a family member was pretty ill and was in and out of the hospital, and it was, it was a bit of a shock to the system and a, a bit of a wake-up call. And I thought to myself, I wondered, I was so passionate about software and technology, was there some way I could use that to actually help people with medical issues. Um, And so in college, I did biomedical engineering. And towards the end of college, I was kind of trying to figure out how to go about inventing things. And my mentor, who's a gastroenterologist, was very smart about it. He said, if you want to invent something, you need to know what the problems are first. And the best way to understand medical problems is to be a physician. So I took his advice very literally, and I went to UCLA for med school, and I stayed there to do orthopedic surgery. And that's where I experienced firsthand the biggest problem facing our healthcare system today, which is how we train and assess our healthcare providers. Um, And right around this time, virtual reality had this renaissance, and I was involved because of my gaming background, and uh, I was able to do something about it. So I basically created the concept that ultimately ultimately became OsoVR. So OsoVR is a training system for healthcare professionals using VR? Correct. So OsoVR is a virtual reality-based training and assessment platform uh, designed for surgeons, uh, OR staff, and sales reps. Um, And our mission is to improve patient outcomes through better education and assessment, also to increase the adoption of newer and higher-value medical technology and procedures, uh, and finally, democratizing access to surgical education around the world. So what's the program, uh, what does the platform look like, you know, specifically? Like, who would use it, and, you know, what... How does it work for to train them on certain skills? Yeah, so it, we've designed the platform to uh, be usable by someone who both has never done a surgery before and also has never used virtual reality before. So it's very easy to use, but it's also important to us that it was realistic and led to real-world skill transfer. So um, right now we work with um, sort of two main groups. One would be medical device companies. And so they're facing a big challenge right now in that New technology is coming out so rapidly and everything's so amazing, but it's actually more complicated than technology that came uh, before. So these newer technologies you may have heard about, like surgical robots, 3D printing, patient-specific implants, um, all of these things are actually more complex and require more training. But we just have old models where people would try things once in a lab or on a cadaver and then expect to do it on a person, and that just doesn't work anymore. Um, And so what we do is we create virtual reality training experiences for these devices that people can use over and over again until they're actually ready to do it on a person Um, and so that the patient can be safer and also the provider actually needs to have a good experience so that they perceive that this is a safe device that's not going to harm their patient. Um, The other uh, wing of what we do is, is more educational. We partner with residency training programs and medical schools where uh, we basically um, uh, were set up in like the Hospital for Special Surgery, Columbia, Vanderbilt, 
uh, some of the leading institutions in the country where they're using our platform as part of their educational program for their surgeons and training. And so it's available um, in the resident workrooms or their bioskills labs. So in between cases or after work, they can go put on a virtual reality headset and run through procedures that they'll be doing coming up or that they need to reach proficiency at and practice them in a hands-on and realistic manner. Hmm. So um, any example of like a really particular skill that, uh, I mean, well, let me back up a little bit. Is the system in use yet or is it still at the conceptual stage? Do you have actual surgeons or doctors uh, training on these systems to, you know, for certain skills? Absolutely, yeah. It's currently being used uh, all over the world, actually. Um, and so, you know, what we focus on is um, we try and focus on, you know, on the residency side, certain basic procedures and skills that they need to know that um, is generally part of their curriculum, sort of foundational uh, procedures, um, and also complex medical technologies. So these newer technologies, like uh, take this unicondylar knee replacement, it's it's half of a knee replacement. It's a quicker recovery, um, but not a lot of people do it because it's actually a little more finicky than a full knee replacement. And so we're able to have people run through the whole procedure and practice it in a realistic way uh, over and over again. Um, and, you know, what people don't realize is that, um, you know, a lot of the procedures that we do now, it, it's pretty uh, set out in a, a series of steps or what we call chaining or sequencing of known skills. So um, a lot of the skills that we learn in surgery, like whether you're talking about dissection, suturing, uh, in orthopedics, we do a lot of drilling, hammering, screwing. Those are learned relatively early on. And once you know them, you know them. And they're very transferable. What is not very transferable is how do you chain these skills together into a full procedure? It's almost like putting notes together to form a whole song, right? You know, you know how to play piano and you know the technique, but every new piece you need to learn uh, from the beginning. Um, and so that's what the data shows us, that a fully trained surgeon, a fellowship trained surgeon who's been in 14 years of training, 14, 15 years, if they want to learn a new procedure or technique, they still have to do it 100 times before they can do it safely. Um, and hmm. so the transferability because of you know the, the sheer complexity of these procedures is, is quite low, actually. So despite knowing all of the foundational skills and principles, people still can't switch between these different procedures. So that's where we come in. We show people how to chain together their known skills um, into a full procedure, and they can also practice with the team or with a mentor um, in order to reach proficiency without putting patients at risk. So yeah, what are some of the skills that they would have to do normally 100 times, um, no matter how well trained they are? You know, what are some examples? Right. So um, you know, there are kind of two classic examples I'll use. One would be um, in orthopedics, there's a procedure called a direct anterior hip replacement. It's very similar to traditional hip replacement, which is from the back or posterior lateral posterior, um, but it has extra steps. And um, it actually requires uh, multiple team members to do things like uh, manipulating a large bed and moving legs around. And so it's a very different way to do it. And so while you know, a fellowship trained surgeon understands all the various skills like broaching, reaming, drilling, and all these things, how to actually sequence these things together into a smooth procedure and coordinate the whole team is actually quite complicated. So, you know, the 300 or so steps involved in that procedure were able to simulate so people can see how to sort of string together and coordinate the team uh, to perform that procedure smoothly and automate most of it. So they're not really thinking about what's next. They're just using muscle memory. Um, in VR, though, I, I mean, are you including haptic feedback, you know, touch feedback, or like what does a VR uh, scene look like? Yeah, so I would say that's probably the 
the first question we get most of the time. So it's, it's a complicated answer. So the first thing I would say is, yes, we do have haptic feedback. We have a very particular form of it. It's called cutaneous haptics. So um, in general, when talking about haptics, I'll, I'll divide it. There are many categories, but I divide it into three categories for people. One is kinesthetic haptic feedback. This is what people think about as force feedback. In the simulation or robotics world, these are like, uh, if you've ever seen these 3D haptic styluses that will push back against your hand. Um, and those have been around for 20 or so years. And what's interesting is they're still pretty expensive and there's a lot of data that shows that it doesn't seem to lead to real world skill transfer. And mm -hmm. in fact, there was a study that came out last year that was very interesting where it seemed to make people worse. And so the theory was that because you know haptic technology is still relatively early and so because it's not 100%, if it's like 95% realistic, you're actually training someone the wrong way. It's, I, I equate it to you're learning how to shoot a basketball on like one of the carnival basketball machines. And so when you mm. go to apply that skill that you thought was fully realistic to real life, it actually doesn't apply as well as you thought. And, and so actually this group that trained with a haptic simulator with force feedback did worse than someone that didn't use a simulator at all. So that was very interesting. Now, cutaneous haptics is something that we're all familiar with. It's light touch, vibration, and temperature, and it's very similar to the technologies that are in our smartphones now. So the latest iPhones and Android phones have this functionality where you have very sophisticated sort of haptic systems. And this actually has been shown to lead to real-world skill transfer improvement, mainly in surgical robotics, and it's very, very low cost. So that is something that we take advantage of. So when someone's drilling through bone, they could actually feel the different layers of the bone as they're drilling through it. Um, and then there's another a category of haptics that I call phantom haptics. And that's actually your brain will fill in the gaps um, where there's no sensory input, yet you think there is. So it's almost like an optical illusion. Um, and uh, it's pretty amazing to experience. So to give you an example, one of our simulations, you have to hammer in this titanium rod into the bone. And for a while, we had no haptics at all implemented there. Now we do have a little bit. But every time someone did it, they take off the headset and come to me and they're like, how did you get the haptics to feel so good with that hammering? Like I could feel, feel it in my hand. I'm like, well, actually there was none there at all. And so hmm. your brain has something called tactile memory. So it will fill in the gaps with sort of your previous experience with similar, uh, similar haptic uh, uh, experiences and sensations. Um, and a great real world example of this in action is the Da Vinci robot. So it's the most popular surgical robot, huge market penetration. And you would think that if you could, you know, replace the heart valve, take out a prostate, do all these things that would require incredibly sensitive haptics. Yet the Da Vinci has zero haptic feedback, none. But a lot of people who use it think it does because they swear that they can feel the tissue that they're manipulating. So it's, we're just Weird. beginning to understand our brain's ability to do this. And it's very fascinating. Um, so I, sort of a longer answer to your question, but yes. So, you know, we don't market our platform as 100% realistic. We market it as it's realistic enough to lead to real world skill transfer and feel immersive, but we want to avoid that issue where we're too close to reality, where we're actually confusing people, um, or where, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen a movie like Polar Express or Final Fantasy Spirits Within, yeah. where it's a, there's, there's a phenomenon with animation called the uncanny valley. So when you have any sort of simulated sort of sensory input, if it's close to realistic, but not quite all the way there, it actually creates a very strange sensation in the brain. Uh, sort of a feeling of revulsion and disgust. And so we definitely mm -hmm. want to avoid that. So we're kind of like, we purposely kind of dial it back a little bit so people are aware that it's, this isn't meant to be 100% realistic as a training tool, but it still feels very immersive um, and it's realistic enough 
that we've shown in multiple studies now that it leads to real-world surgical improvement. Interesting. Huh. So you can't get too close to reality. Otherwise, like you said, it could even backfire or train you wrong. I guess it's like playing Guitar Hero and thinking you could play regular guitar, right? <laughs> yeah, it's something like that. You could say that, yeah. I love that game. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so is it is it actually true? So if uh, someone wants to learn a skill, will they literally have to do it on your VR system 100 times, or can they just do do it on the system some of the time and then they transfer it to the real world for the rest of it? Like what's um what's a a, I think, a learning path? Yes, that's that's a great question, and and it it opens up a big issue in how we're treating training right now, and that everybody's different. People learn different ways and at different speeds, and so you need to both customize the experience that they're having where it works best for them and they're learning most efficiently, and also you need to be able to assess them and be like, when is this skill or procedure learned, and when do people still have uh, a ways to go? How do you assess competency? Um, and so right now in the world of surgery, whether you're applying to be a surgeon, whether you are a surgeon, uh, or whether you're in training, you were never assessed for your surgical skill pretty much. And I would say that when I was interviewing for residency, there was one place that did assess me and the way they did it may shock you. They had me play the board game operation. Really? That was the, <laughs> yeah, this is a true story. So that was the most sophisticated assessment of my surgical skills. So this is a big issue because um, you know, surgical skill in 2013, which is, it's weird that this study was only done so recently, but uh, we found that surgical skills directly tied to how a patient does after a surgery, which is not surprising. So the fact that we never measure it is, is a little odd. Um, and also the way that surgical training is designed is it's, it's just time box. So it, it's, it's sort of a strange model. Imagine I just, I took you and I told you to follow some surgeons around for five years. And then after five years, I just push you into the real world and just assume that you're good to go. And that's, that's really how it works right now. And so, you know, in a perfect world, you'd want to assess someone frequently and whenever they're ready, they should leave, you know, maybe they could leave earlier. Maybe they need a little bit longer in the oven. Um, and so this is a competency-based training model that people are starting to look at uh, to see if we can make residency training a bit more efficient. The problem is we just don't have that assessment tool yet of how do we objectively assess technical skill and readiness to operate. Um, and that's what our platform is attempting to do. Well, what about continuing education or continuing work? You know, I, I, they have it for a lot of professions. I, I hope they have it for uh, physicians. Yes. So uh, CME or continuing medical education is a requirement for the maintenance of our licensure. Um, but the data to date shows that it doesn't really do a whole lot. You know, a lot of it is very perfunctory. Like you just get it for attending a conference or watching a webinar. So it's it's not really assessing you or, or teaching something in any meaningful way. So, um, but yes, um, having ongoing maintenance of certification or some sort of assessment that you're still safe to do the procedures that you're doing, I think is important as a patient safety issue and also just a healthcare uh, efficiency issue. You know, you want the best people doing the most complicated surgeries and, you know, you just want people to, to be sort of in their zone of, of where they're, they're most optimally placed to best serve the population. So is your VR system going to be used as a CME? I mean, once you train on a new skill, you know, let's say you just happen to have, you know, surgery rotations where you're not using it very much, the skill I think would fade. But if you've been certified on it three years ago, would they let you operate on people and do that particular thing? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, skill attrition is real. Um, and so, you know, having some sort of check-in every now and then um, seems to be a very reasonable approach. And actually, 
you know, we're taking a lot of cues from the aviation industry and how they're utilizing simulation. Um, a lot of the airlines will have their pilots every six months recertify in a simulator. So they get retested every six months to make sure they could handle certain situations, especially what are called low frequency, high urgency situations. So to give you an example of that, um, you know, in the, there was a Southwest tragedy a few months ago where one of the engines failed, a passenger died, but the pilot was sort of effortlessly able to land the plane. That probably was the first time the pilot ever did that, but that's one of the situations in a simulator which they test for every six months is a single engine landing. And so there are lots of things that happen in surgery that happen so rarely, but when they do, you should know what to do. And so these are very important things to simulate and make sure that people are able to handle should they ever come up. So is your plan to integrate uh, the VR not only as an initial training tool, but as a CME module? Yeah, you know, what we're hoping to do is integrate with the governing bodies, professional organizations uh, um, in, in terms of maintenance of certification and licensure so that there's an easy tool that people can use from home that's actually helpful and isn't sort of like a big uh, encumbrance uh, that effectively trains people and assesses their ability to perform certain procedures. Um, so where this technology is going is, is the cost is coming down so rapidly and the quality continues to improve that you can, you know, potentially just everybody is going to have a headset and some sort of motion uh, tracking device for their hands just at home so that they can use this, you know, before they operate the night before to just kind of refresh themselves if it's a procedure that they don't do frequently or if they have to do some of this assessment for uh, uh, maintenance of uh, license and certification, they can just do it very easily at home very quickly. What about for um, a particular situation? You know, let's say someone, you know, God forbid, has a... Um a tumor or something that has to be, uh, that involves, you know, surgery where they have to go in and the dimensions of that particular person are important. You know, again, let's say there's a tumor with a blood supply, et cetera. Could you make a VRN module on the fly that would, uh, that would help a doctor do that? Yeah. So that's a really interesting application. So, um, in the simulation world, that's called mission rehearsal. So where you have the patient specific imaging and anatomy, uh, in the simulation and you can interact with it as if you were going through the motions of the actual procedure. So that is certainly something that we're capable of doing and we're starting to move in that direction um, and introduces a, a, a few interesting technical challenges um, that, you know, we're moving towards it in a stepwise fashion, but certainly on our roadmap. Um, and there are also like a lot of exciting technologies in the OR uh, to address that very issue. So, you know, utilizing a combination of new imaging modalities, like, you know, there are all sorts of ways to detect the borders of tumors in terms of uh, navigation, like something like what like Brain Lab does, where you can superimpose a CT scan using an augmented reality headset. And so you can kind of see through the patient, see the borders of the tumor as visualized on MRI or CT. Um, you know, there are various modalities like radiation and, and fluorescence that can be combined to make it even more accurate um, as well. So it's the tumor interop imaging and guidance space is really exciting right now. Um, and, you know, more and more AI and computer vision are being incorporated as well to provide extra assistance to the surgeon to sort of augment them. Um, I think the, the whole goal is that, you know, we have some amazing surgeons here in the U.S. and all around the world, but it takes so long to get them there. And it's also like not everyone even has the aptitude to get there. So what we need to do is to sort of democratize these advanced and sophisticated surgical skills to make it so the average surgeon or even a mid-level provider can do some of these more complex procedures to better meet the growing surgical needs of our population. To give you an example of why we're in a bit of a crisis and why technologies like these are becoming increasingly important is that 
our population is aging very rapidly. Um, and yet we're only able to train a fixed amount of physicians every year. Um, and it's a very similar problem in many other countries. Uh, for us, it's because Medicare funds residency training and the Balanced Budget Act of 1997 caps the number of residency spots. Um, so what we're going to have very shortly, the American Medical Association predicts we're going to be short 100,000 physicians by 2030. So somehow, some way, we're going to need to be able to do more with less. Um, and so that involves augmenting the surgeon, augmenting the physician, and also allowing sort of more support roles to have more autonomy and more cap capability. So this would be like nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And uh, technology is really going to be the foundation of how we're going to solve the majority of these problems. What about, um, you know, if you're a doctor and, you know, in a third world country and you need to do some of those surgeries and some of this work, are you going to make your platform available to people like that so they can at least train and do the surgeries and stuff they need to do because they otherwise couldn't get to uh, professionals to train them? That's, that's a fantastic question, and that is the third pillar of our mission at OsoVR, is democratizing surgical education all around the world. The reason why we have chosen to go with basically commoditized gaming hardware that's relatively low cost is so that we can scale this up worldwide. So whether you're at Cleveland Clinic or Hospital for Special Surgery, or you're in a small hospital in Ethiopia, you can have access to the same exact training experience and standards. Um, and so this could have a huge impact all around the world. Um, and we are looking at sites uh, um, outside of the U.S. to, to test this and, and see how we can best meet the needs um, of sort of surgeons in remote areas to better standardize the training that they're receiving. Um, and so it could be similar to what we have out here. Very good. You said the hardware that you're using is off-the-shelf stuff. Is it literally like Oculus Go or some of those systems for the VR or is it custom? So yeah, it's, it's all off-the-shelf commoditized gaming hardware. We use uh, Oculus Rift mainly, but we're hardware agnostic. Um, and for us, really the need to have component is the one-to-one -one hand tracking. So Oculus Go doesn't have hand tracking uh, that's six degrees of freedom, so it doesn't exactly track the position of your hands. Whereas the Oculus Touch controllers very accurately uh, allow you to interact with the virtual world in a realistic manner so that you can kind of walk around the room, pick up objects, and do the surgery just like you would do in real life uh, very intuitively. That's amazing. So what stage are you at with all this? Um, again, where are you deployed and, and what's what's next for the next six months or a year? Yeah, so um, we're, I guess I don't know what I'd call the stage. We're, we're commercially launched. Uh, we work with some of the largest medical device manufacturers in the world. We partnered with top residency programs in the U.S. We're being used globally. Um, we've validated the platform multiple times. We're starting to work on now a, a couple of different initiatives. Uh, one is, you know, testing that, that global democratization strategy and, and starting to do some early partnerships there. Um, we're working on um, more precision elements. So how do we more realistically uh, teach people certain skills and certain parts of these long procedures? Um, and uh, also, you know, some, <laughs> some exciting applications with uh, uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence that I can't yet talk about. Okay. Um, where's the best place for people to find out more and to learn about the modules and, you know, see what they can do and evaluate whether they should use it? Yeah, I would, I would check out the website, osovr.com, O-S-S-O-V-R. Um, and just there's a, a bunch of contact forms. Just reach out. Um, we, we get back to people pretty quickly. And uh, we're really looking for um, early adopters. So people want to integrate this into their residency programs or hospitals and, and do research or test it. Um, or um, any medical device companies who are interested in 
integrating virtual reality into their training strategies uh, definitely should give us a ring. But uh, anyone who's interested in uh, in using technology within healthcare, healthcare innovation, also I love to encourage people and, and try and uh, give people the tools to solve problems because uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. And, and it's a really exciting time right now within healthcare because unfortunately the problems are so bad, but what that means is that everyone's highly motivated to solve them. And the solutions are just so amazing now. Technology has gotten to the point where it can solve this problem exponentially better than it could just a few years back. And then finally, the third thing that's been critical is that everyone within healthcare is seemingly much more open to new technologies and change than they were just a few years ago, just because of the sheer amount of it and how it, uh, it's present in our everyday life, uh, just on every level. That's great. Well, Justin, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much for having me. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.